0: Good morning, friends. Do you love the Word of God? That's my topic for this morning and this, this Sunday's message. Uh, my text I'm going to follow is found in the longest chapter uh, in the Bible. It's Psalm 119, and I'm going to focus on verses 97 to 104. So I'm going to go back again and ask that question, Do you love the Word of God? Now, how would you answer that question? In one of his writings, that great Christian preacher long ago, Charles Spurgeon, shared eight marks of true love of, for God's Word. And before we get into Psalm 119, I just want to share with those eight marks, and then we're going to move on. But he said, here, here they are. Reverence for the authority of God's Word, admiration for its holiness, jealousy for its honor, respect for all it says, diligence in the study of it, eager desire to obey it, readiness to praise it, and a great desire to share it with others. Oh, how I love your law. That's what the writer of Psalm 119 says. And then he gives us four reasons why he loves God's word and why we should love it as well. Here's reason number one superior wisdom. He starts out by saying in verses 98 to 100, Your commandment makes me wiser than my enemies, for it is ever with me. I have more understanding than all my teachers, for your testimonies are my meditation. I understand more than the aged, for I keep your precepts. Now, in these verses, one reason is mentioned three times. He says God's word gives us wisdom. And I hope you notice the phrases he uses, wiser, more insight, more understanding. But you might be asking, is this the boasting of a man who thinks too highly of himself? I mean, is he some sort of a smart aleck who thinks he's better than everyone else? I mean, where does this confidence come from? Well, the answer is God's wisdom is superior to human wisdom. And if you learn what God says, you're going to know things the people of the world have never discovered. I mean, there is, first of all, wisdom that's superior to the wisdom of your enemies. Verse 98 says, all of us have enemies at one time or another. They try to intimidate us by clever talk, crafty schemes, evil threats. They even attempt to scare us into thinking that they're the ones who are smart and that we as Christ followers are the stupid people. And they try to put down anyone who disagrees with them. But friends, don't be misled by their vain boasting. They may have street smarts and a certain degree of intellectual ability. They're no doubt shrewd in worldly wisdom and gifted at twisting our words and manipulating the facts to make us look bad. But, but don't, don't worry, they do not have true wisdom. I mean, that's reserved for those who know the truth of God. So how does the word give you superior wisdom? Well, verse 98 says, it is ever with me, which means that as I internalize the word, it becomes a part of my life. Now, I'm not going to get this wisdom by flopping on the couch or sitting in my recliner or watching television or, you know, while I watch my favorite team win or lose. I mean, if I want real wisdom, sooner or later, I've got to turn off the TV, put down the remote, pick up my Bible. And then only then will I discover the wisdom that delivers me from my enemies. Well, there's also a wisdom that's superior to the wisdom of my teachers. Now, that may sound funny. That's in Verse 99. But this is a verse beloved by students at colleges and seminaries everywhere. I mean, We should not think that the psalmist intends to demean the role of teachers. Far from it. I mean, teaching is a noble profession. Teachers deserve our respect and support. It does not matter if your teachers do not know the Lord. I mean, teachers have knowledge and you need the knowledge they have. So we ought to respect them and learn from them as much as we can. But there are limits to all human knowledge. And that is true even if you have a B.A., an M.A., a Ph.D. or an M.D. or any other advanced degree. Human wisdom can only take you so far. Now, let me give you a little illustration. You know, in virtually every public school science class in America, students are taught that evolution is the only true explanation of human origins. In most places, it's taught as dogma, not as theory. Evolution in the, ult- in the ultimate sense is more than a scientific theory. It's also an all-encompassing worldview that attempts to account for everything in the universe apart from God. And boy, woe to the Christian teacher who attempts to show the weakness of evolution and the possibility of divine creation. I mean, a teacher who does that in a public setting puts their job at risk by challenging the status quo. See, it's at this point that a knowledge of the Bible is essential. If you know Genesis chapters 1 through 11, you have more understanding... Than your teachers, if you know about the days of creation and how God created Adam from the dust of the earth, now he took the first woman from Adam's side. And if you know about Noah's flood, the Tower of Babel, the dispersal of the nations, you have a depth of knowledge and understanding <coughs> that goes way beyond your teachers. That's why if your children are not grounded in God's word, if they do not know what they believe and why, and if they do not know how to study the Bible on their own, they're likely to be in big trouble when their faith is attacked. And note the reason why the Word gives us this sort of wisdom. It says, your testimonies are my meditation. See, God is able to teach you directly from his Word, but it takes time, it takes effort, it takes determination. It does not happen by chance. And then there's a wisdom that's superior to the wisdom of the aged. That's verse 100. Now, you cannot read the Bible without being impressed with the high value placed on older people. (laughs) And I, I I thank God for that. I mean, these people are to be loved and revered and respected and cared for and listened to. I mean, your elders have experience and you need to benefit from their experience. And there's always much to learn from those who are older than you. But, and there's always a but here, old age in itself does not equal wisdom. There is such a thing as an old fool. In fact, the world is full of old fools who started as young fools and then just simply just got old. I mean, wisdom comes from years spent obeying God's word. The understanding he mentions in this verse means the ability to penetrate with insight into difficult issues. We know how to tackle hard problems because we've learned what God says in the Bible. But note the reason this is possible. It says, I kept your precepts. See, the Bible's not magic. It's not going to change you by itself. I mean, you do not get wisdom by osmosis. like putting it under your pillow at night. If you want this superior wisdom, you must do what the psalmist said. And if you read verses 98, 99, and 100, there are some key phrases. It says, with me. In other words, read it. Meditate. Study it. Keep your precepts. Obey it. So it's read, study, obey, and you too will gain superior wisdom. Now, here's reason number two. It's spiritual discernment. In verses 101 to 102, it says, I hold back my feet from every evil way. In order to keep your word, I do not turn aside from your rules, for you have taught me. Now, friends, I hope you understand The Psalmist says that the Bible keeps him off the wrong road and keeps him on the right road. Now, every day we are faced with a thousand, a thousand times over with the choice of going one direction or the other. One path is the path of obedience that leads to love, joy, peace, patience, fulfillment, you know, all those kinds of things, deeper knowledge. The other road is a path of temptation or sin or compromise or bitterness, anger, all that other stuff. And each day we choose again and again which road we're going to follow. But if we know and love God's word, the truth itself will pull us in the right direction. We'll know which way to go and the word will help us choose the right path. You know, just consider these famous words from Psalm 119 verse 9. How can a young man keep his way pure? By guarding it according to your word. See one function of God's word is to keep us on the path of moral purity. It puts a kind of a guard around our mind to keep us on the right track. And I want you to note the two parts of this spiritual discernment. First, there's a self-restraint. It says, "I hold back my feet." It's kind of an intentional act, meaning "I could do that, but I won't." or as I have been have taught you before, Christians should say others may <laughs> I cannot." We have a higher calling. We're called to keep God's word as the foundation in all that we do. And second, there's a personal submission. I do not turn aside. As I was studying this text, it occurred to me that this is one of the reasons why we all need rules. I mean, husbands need rules, wives need rules, parents need rules, so do children. We all have various rules that govern us at either school or on the job. If you can hardly go anywhere without various rules concerning your conduct, like putting your mask on, well, some of those rules seem rather trivial at the time, and some of the students made a career of rebelling against them. But now I see things differently. See, one reason for rules is to help us develop personal convictions so that when the rules are not enforced, we still choose to do the right thing. Someone once said, sin will keep you from this book, or this book will keep you from sin. And not true. In every situation of life, the Word of God shows you what to do. It's the only reliable source of absolute moral truth. Follow what it says, and your life will be more pure and more clean than it was before. Well, verse 102 answers a very crucial question. How does God speak to us today? Now, a lot of people look for dreams or visions or unusual manifestations, but I just want you to note what the Psalmist says about his experience with the Bible. As he read it, he discovered that you yourself have taught me. He heard the voice of God in the pages of the Bible. What a tremendous truth this is. We are personally taught by God as we read his word. Now, would you like God to speak to you? Well, he does. He will. When we come to the Bible reverently or humbly with open hearts, God speaks directly to us. Let's get to the third reason here to to love the word. It's lasting joy. Psalm 119, verse 103 says, How sweet are your words to my taste, sweeter than honey to my mouth. Now understand, back in the days when that psalm was written, honey was the universal sweetener. Back then, people used honey the way we use sugar and artificial sweeteners. The, The writer is telling us that he has a sweet tooth for God's word. To most of us that's unusual. To us sweetness speaks of, you know, chocolate cake or crispy cream donuts or whatever. We we don't normally think of sweetness when we read the Bible. After all, it's a big book with history and doctrine and prophecy and lots of words that are hard to pronounce. Plus the Bible's printed in a big book that's often quite bulky and it's hard to associate the thought of sweetness with the Bible as a whole. So what does he mean? I think the key is in the phrase, your words. Now, note the plural there, words. In this verse, he does not say, how sweet is your word to my taste. Now, that would have been true and proper, but he didn't say that. He used the plural, your words. I mean, that's a key insight here. And as we ponder the words of the Bible one by one, phrase by phrase, verse by verse, they become sweet to us. I mean, think of a piece of... uh, I'll say hard candy. How do you eat that? Well, you put it in your mouth and you let it dissolve slowly. And as it dissolves, the sweetness fills your mouth. Now, if you try to put 20 pieces of candy in your mouth, and I may have tried that once or twice when I was a kid. Maybe you did too. First of all, they just don't fit. and You're going to end up spitting some of them out. The sweetness you seek comes slowly, one piece at a time. Martin Luther said the way to study the Bible is to pick a verse and then shake it like you shake a fruit tree. See, if you keep shaking a verse, sooner or later the fruit will fall into your lap. I mean, Luther also said if the fruit does not fall, go on to another verse. Eventually, you'll find a verse where the fruit falls in abundance. And there you can stop and feast on God's word. I mean, consider the familiar words, for example, of Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. I mean, roll that around in your mind for a moment. It's the Lord himself who shepherds me. He's my shepherd at all times, every situation, no matter where I am, what I'm doing. And even when I wander away from the rest of the flock, he never leaves me. And even though he's the shepherd for other people, he's a personal shepherd. It says, my shepherd, I mean, known by me, and I'm known to him. Therefore, I don't have any wants. I will not want. I I cannot lack for anything good. I have never been in want. I'm not in want now, uh, no matter my circumstances. And I will not be in want tomorrow. Such a shepherd is my Lord to me. I mean, that's what happens when you start shaking God's word like you shake a fruit tree. That's pretty, pretty simple, isn't it? And a whole lot more I could add here. But even as I, I was scribbling down these words, I felt the fruit falling all around me. And that's kind of how the word of God becomes sweet to us. So It's word by word, phrase by phrase, verse by verse. And if we just stop and savor it, its sweetness fills our hearts. And I just say how desperately we all need this. The world needs this. We live in a loud, ugly, and abusive age. Boy, 2020 has been the pits. Let's not get into any more of that. But, you know, we just need to turn aside from the sounds of this world and fill our minds with something beautiful. Once the word of God becomes sweet to you, you will become a sweeter person. Let's get to this last point, reason four, holy hatred. Verse one hundred four says Through your precepts I get understanding, therefore I hate every false way. Now this final blessing kind of sounds odd, I'm sure. I'm sure that if we were right if we would have been writing this, we would have ended with a with the part about sweetness. That's a nice place to finish. It's a whole lot better than holy hatred. But you know the Christian life is more than just sweetness. There's also a hard edge to our faith. And whether we like it or not, we live in an ugly world where evil people do (laughs) evil things. And even apparently nice people can sometimes be incredibly cruel. And if you're going to grow spiritually, you need to learn to hate evil. I'm not talking about hating people. I'm talking about the evil. Take a moment to contrast the end of this verse with the beginning. Verse 97 says, Oh, how I love your law. And verse 104 concludes with, Therefore, I hate every false way. You see, friends, one essential part of Christian discipleship is learning to hate evil. Before we can fully love God's word, we must also hate what God hates. And if we love God's law, we're going to hate every false way. We're we're never going to learn what's true unless we learn what's false and turn from it. I mean, there's a very practical ramification from this truth. If we ignore the Bible, sin will not seem awfully bad. Apart from the Bible, sin will seem sort of bad or... Not very good, but it will not seem exceedingly sinful. See, the world will seem like your home and sinners more attractive than saints as long as you neglect God's word. I mean, there's no contradiction between verse 103 and 104. They belong together. Loving the word makes us sweeter and stronger at the same time. And as God's word grows sweeter, every false way becomes even more repulsive. Well, let me wrap things up by considering again the theme of this verse, Oh, how I love your law. Now don't make any mistake of reading the word love as some sort of a ooey gooey mushy gushy emotional sentimental attraction. The Hebrew word used here is much stronger than that. It means to make a lasting commitment to someone or something. To love God's Word means to commit yourself to making it the very foundation of your life. This sort of love cannot happen by accident. It's a combination of desire plus diligence. I mean, you don't just wake up one day loving the Bible. That is a cultivated habit that is developed over time. Now, let me make this very personal for everyone who is listening to these words. And so just consider these four questions. Do I love the word of God? Do I love to hear it preached and taught? Do I love the word of God even when it rebukes me and convicts me? And four, do I love to share it with others? Friends, if you want to make, want this sort of love for God's Word, there's probably five steps you ought to take on a regular basis. These are pretty simple. Read it, ponder it, memorize it, talk about it, pray over it. The particular details do not matter so long as you are doing these five things. Uh, sooner or later, the Bible will become very precious to you, and reading it will go from drudgery to duty to daily delight. So we pray, Lord, implant in us a love for your word. Write your truth upon our hearts. Let your word be our joy, our strength, and our wisdom, and let it be the source of all that we say and do. And may we love your word today more than yesterday and tomorrow more than today. May your word be precious to us because it comes from you. We pray this in Jesus' name. And so, friends, until next time, see the vision, live the mission, feel the passion. God bless.